CD6 McGrath whirled away in the buffeting wind, clinging tightly to a broomstick which now, she feared, had about as much buoyancy as a bit of firewood. It certainly wasn't capable of sustaining a full-grown woman against the beckoning fingers of gravity. As she plunged down towards the forest roof, in a long, shallow dive, she reflected that there was possibly something complimentary in the way Granny Weatherwax resolutely refused to consider other people's problems. It implied that, in her considerable opinion, they were quite capable of sorting them out by themselves. Some kind of change spell was probably in order. McGrath concentrated. Well, that seemed to work. Nothing in the sight of mortal man had in fact changed. What McGrath had achieved was a mere adjustment of the mental processes, from a bewildered and slightly frightened woman gliding inexorably towards the inhospitable ground to a clear-headed, optimistic and positive-thinking woman who had really got it together was taking full responsibility for her own life and, in general, knew where she was coming from, although, unfortunately, where she was heading had not changed in any way, but she felt a lot better about it. She dug her heels in and forced the broomstick to yield the last dregs of its power in a brief burst, sending it skimming erratically a few feet from the trees. As it sagged again and started to plough a furrow among the midnight leaves, she tensed herself prayed to whatever gods of the forest might be listening that she would land on something soft and let go. There are 3,000 known major gods on the disc, and research theologians discover more every week. Apart from the minor gods of rock, tree and water, there are two that haunt the ramtops. Hokey, half a man, half a goat, and entirely a bad practical joker, who was banished from Dun Manifestin, for pulling the old exploding mistletoe joke on blind Eo, chief of all the gods. And also Hearn the Hunted, the terrified and apprehensive deity of all small furry creatures whose destiny it is to end their lives as a brief, crunchy squeak. Either could have been candidates for the small miracle which then occurred, for in a forest full of cold rocks, jagged stumps and thorn bushes, McGrath landed on something soft. Granny, meanwhile, was accelerating towards the mountains on the second leg of the journey. She consumed the regrettably tepid cocoa and, with proper environmental consideration, dropped the bottle as she passed over an upland lake. It turned out that McGrath's idea of sustaining food was two rounds of egg and cress sandwiches with the crusts cut off and Granny noticed before the wind whipped it away a small piece of parsley placed with consideration and care on top of each one. Granny regarded them for some time. Then she ate them. A chasm loomed, still choked with winter snow, like a tiny spark in the darkness, a dot of light against the hugeness of the ramp tops. Granny tackled the maze of the mountains. Back in the forest, McGrath sat up and absent-mindedly pulled a twig from her hair. A few yards away, the broomstick dropped through the trees, showering leaves. A groan and a small half-hearted tinkle caused her to peer into the gloom. An instinct figure was on its hands and knees searching for something. Did I land on you? said McGrath. Someone did, said the fool. 
they crawled nearer to one another. You? You? What are you doing here? Mary, I was walking along the ground, said the fool. A lot of people do. You know what I mean? I know it's been done before. It's not original. Probably lacks imagination, but, well, it's always been good enough for me. Did I hurt you? I think I've got one or two bells that won't be the same again. The fool scrabbled through the leaf mould and finally located his hated hat. It clonked. Totally crushed, to faith, he said, putting it on anyway. He seemed to feel better for that and went on, Rain, yes. Hail, yes. Even lumps of rock. Fish and small frogs, okay. Women, no, up till now. Is it going to happen again? You've got a bloody hard head, said McGrath, pulling herself to her feet. Modesty forbids me to comment, said the fool, and then remembered himself and added quickly, Prithee. They stared at one another again, their minds racing. McGrath thought, Nanny said look at him properly. I'm looking at him. He just looks the same. A sad, thin little man in a ridiculous jester's outfit. He's practically a hunchback. Then, in the same way that a few random bulges in a cloud can suddenly become a galleon or a whale in the eye of the beholder, McGrath realised that the fool was not a little man. He was at least of average height, but he made himself small by hunching his shoulders, bandying his legs, and walking in a half-crouch that made him appear as though he was capering on the spot. I wonder what else Gytha Og noticed, she thought, intrigued. He rubbed his arm and gave her a lopsided grin. I suppose you haven't got any idea where we are, he said. Witches never get lost, said McGrath firmly. Although they can become temporarily mislaid. Longcra's over that way, I think. I've got to find a hill, if you'll excuse me. To see where you are. To see when, I think. There's a lot of magic going on tonight. Is there? Then I think I'll accompany you, the fool added chivalrously, after peering cautiously into the tree-haunted gloom that apparently lay between him and his flagstones. I wouldn't want anything to happen to you. Granny lay low over the broomstick as it plunged through the trackless chasms of the mountains, leaning from side to side in the hope that this may have some effect on the steering, which seemed strangely to be getting worse. Falling snow behind her was whipped and spiralled into odd shapes by the wind of her passage. Rearing waves of crusted snow poised all winter over the glacial valleys, trembled, and then began the long, silent fall. Her flight was punctuated by the occasional boom of an avalanche. She looked down at the landscape of sudden death and jagged beauty, and knew it was looking back at her as a dozing man may watch a mosquito. She wondered if it realised what she was doing. She wondered if it would make her fall any softer, and mentally scolded herself for such softness. Oh, the land wasn't like that. It didn't bargain. The land gave hard and took hard. A dog always bit deepest on the veterinary hand. And then she was through, vaulting so low over the last peak that one of her boots filled with snow and barrelling down towards the lowlands. The mist, never far away in the mountains, was back again, but this time 
It was making a fight of it and had become a thick silver sea in front of her. She groaned. Somewhere in the middle of it, Nanny Og floated, taking the occasional pull from a hip flask as a preventative against the chill. And thus it was that Granny, her hat and iron-grey hair dripping with moisture, her boots shedding lumps of ice, heard the distant and muffled sound of a voice enthusiastically explaining to the invisible sky that the hedgehog had less to worry over than just about any other mammal. Like a hawk that has spotted something small and fluffy in the grass, like a wandering interstellar flu germ that has just seen a nice blue planet drifting by, Granny turned the stick and plunged down through the choking billows. Come on! she screamed, drunk with speed and exhilaration, and the sound from five hundred feet overhead put a passing wolf severely off its supper. This minute, Gaither Og! Nanny Og caught her hand with considerable reluctance, and the pair of broomsticks swept up again and into the clear, starlit sky. The disc, as always, gave the impression that the creator has designed it specifically to be looked at from above. Streamers of cloud in white and silver stretched away to the rim, stirred into thousand-mile swirls by the turning of the world. Behind the speeding brooms, the sullen roof of the fog was dragged up into a curling tunnel of white vapour so that the watching gods, and they were certainly watching, could see the terrible flight as a furrow in the sky. A thousand feet and rising fast into the frosty air, the two witches were bickering again. It was a bloody stupid idea, moaned Nanny. I never liked heights. Did you bring something to drink? Certainly, you said. Well... I drank it, didn't I? said Nanny. Sitting around up there at my age, our Jason would have a fit. Granny gritted her teeth. Well, let's have the power, she said. I'm running out of up. Amazing how- <coughs> Granny's voice ended in a scream as, without any warning at all, her broomstick pinwheeled sharply across the clouds and dropped from sight. The fool and Magrat sat on a log on a small outcrop that looked out across the forest. The lights of Loncra Town were in fact not very far away, but neither of them had suggested leaving. The air between them crackled with unspoken thoughts and wild surmisings. You've been a fool long? said Magrat politely. She blushed in the darkness. In that atmosphere, it sounded the most impolite of questions. All my life said the fool bitterly. I cut my teeth on a set of bells. I suppose it gets handed on from father to son, said McGrath. I never saw much of my father. He went off to be a fool for the lords of Quorum when I was small, said the fool. Had a row with my granddad. He comes back from time to time to see my man. That's terrible. There was a sad jingle as the fool shrugged. He vaguely recalled his father as a short, friendly little man, with eyes like a couple of oysters. Doing something as brave as standing up to the old boy must have been quite outside his nature. The sound of two suits of bells shaken in anger 
still haunted his memory, which was full enough of bad scenes as it was. Still, said McGrath, her voice higher than usual with a vibrato of uncertainty. It must have been a happy life, making people laugh, I mean. When there was no reply, she turned to look at the man. His face was like stone. In a low voice, talking as though she was not there, the fool spoke. He spoke of the Guild of Fools and Joculators of Ankh-Morpork. Most visitors mistook it at first for the offices of the Guild of Assassins, which in fact was the rather pleasant, airy collection of buildings next door. The Assassins always had plenty of money. Sometimes the young fools, slaving at their rote in rooms that were always freezing, even in high summer, heard the young assassins at play over the wall and envied them, even though, of course, the number of piping voices grew noticeably fewer towards the end of term. The assassins also believed in competitive examination. In fact, all sorts of sounds managed to breach the high, grim, windowless walls, and from keen questioning of servants, the younger fools picked up a vision of the city beyond. There were taverns out there and parks. There was a whole bustling world in which the students and apprentices of the various guilds and colleges took a right part, either by playing tricks on it, running through it shouting, or throwing parts of it up. There was laughter which paid no attention to the five cadences or twelve inflections, and... Although the students debated this news in the dormitories at night, there was apparently unauthorised humour, delivered freestyle, with no reference to the monster fun book, or the council, or anyone. Out there, beyond the stained stonework, people were telling jokes without reference to the lords of misrule. It was a sobering thought, well, not a sobering thought in actual fact, because alcohol wasn't allowed in the guild, but if it was, it would have been. There was nowhere more sober than the Guild. The fool spoke bitterly of the huge, red-faced brother prankster, of evenings learning the merry jests, of long mornings in the freezing gymnasium, learning the eighteen pratfalls and the accepted trajectory for a custard pie, and juggling, juggling. Brother Jape, a man with a soul like cold-boiled string, taught juggling, it wasn't that the fool was bad at juggling that reduced him to incoherent fury. Fools were expected to be bad at juggling, especially if juggling inherently funny items like custard pies, flaming torches or extremely sharp cleavers. What had Brother Jape laying about him in red-hot clinging rage was the fact that the fool was bad at juggling because he wasn't any good at it. Didn't you want to be anything else? said McGrath. What else is there? said the fool. I haven't seen anything else I could be. Student fools were allowed out in the last year of training, but under a fearsome set of restrictions. Capering miserably through the streets, he'd seen wizards for the first time, moving like dignified carnival floats. He'd seen the surviving assassins, foppish, giggling young men in black silk, as sharp as knives underneath. He'd seen priests. Their fantastic costumes only slightly marred by the long, rubber, sacrificial aprons they wore for major services. Every trade and profession had its costume, he saw, and he realised for the first time that the uniform he was wearing 
had been carefully and meticulously designed for no other purpose than making its wearer look like a complete and utter pillock. Even so, he'd persevered. He'd spent his whole life persevering. He'd persevered precisely because he had absolutely no talent, and because his grandfather would have flayed him alive if he didn't. He'd memorised the authorised jokes until his head rang, and got up even earlier in the morning to juggle until his elbows creaked. He had perfected his grasp of comic vocabulary until only the very senior lords could understand him. He'd capered and clowned with an impenetrable grim determination, and he'd graduated top of his year and had been awarded the bladder of honour. He'd dropped it down the privy when he came home. McGrat was silent. The fool said, How did you get to be a witch? Um... I mean, did you go to school or something? Oh, no. Goody Wemper just walked down to the village one day, got all us girls lined up and chose me. You don't choose the craft, you see. It chooses you. Yes, but when do you actually become a witch? When the other witches treat you as one, I suppose. McGrath sighed. <sighs> if they ever do, she added. I thought they would after I did that spell in the corridor. It was pretty good after all. Marry, t'was a rite of passage, said the fool, unable to stop himself. McGrath gave him a blank look. He coughed. <coughs> the other witches being those two old ladies he said, relapsing into his usual gloom. Yes. Very strong characters, I imagine. Very, said McGrath with feeling. I wonder if they ever met my granddad, said the fool. McGrath looked at her feet. They're quite nice, really, she said. It's just that, well, when you're a witch, you don't think about other people. I mean, you think about them, but you don't actually think about their feelings, if you see what I mean. At least, not unless you think about it. She looked at her feet again. You're not like that, said the fool. Look, I wish you'd stop working for the Duke, said McGrath desperately. You know what he's like, torturing people and setting fire to their cottages and everything. But I'm his fool, said the fool. A fool has to be loyal to his master right up until he dies. I'm afraid it's tradition. Tradition is very important. But you don't even like being a fool. I hate it. But that's got nothing to do with it. If I've got to be a fool, I'll do it properly. That's really stupid, said McGrath. Foolish, I'd prefer. The fool had been edging along the log. If I kiss you, he added carefully, do I turn into a frog? McGrath looked down at her feet again. They shuffled themselves under her dress, embarrassed at all this attention. She could sense the shades of Gytha Og and Esme Weatherwax on either side of her. Granny Spectre glared at her. A witch is master of every situation, it said. Miss Dress, said the vision of Nanny Og, and made a brief gesture involving much grinning and waving of forearms. We shall have to see she said. It was destined to be the most impressive kiss in the history of foreplay. Time, as Granny Weatherworks had pointed out, is a subjective experience. 
The fool's years in the guild had been an eternity, whereas the hours with Magrat on the hilltop passed like a couple of minutes, and high above Lancre, a double handful of seconds extended like taffy into hours of screaming terror. Ice! screamed Granny. It's iced up! Nanny Og came alongside, trying vainly to match courses with the tumbling, bucking broomstick. Octrin fire crackled over the frozen bristles, shorting them out at random. She leaned over and snatched a handful of Granny's skirt. I told you it was daft, she shouted. You went all through all that wet mist and then up into the cold air, you daft bism. You let go of my skirt, Gaither Og. Come on, grab hold of mine. You're on fire at the back there. They shot through the bottom of the cloud bank and screamed in unison as the shrub-covered ground emerged from nowhere and aimed itself directly at them and went past. Nanny looked down a black perspective at the bottom of which a boil of white water was dimly visible. They had flown over the edge of Lancre Gorge. Blue smoke was pouring out of Granny's broomstick, but she hung on, determined, and forced it around. What the hell are you doing? roared Nanny. I can follow the river! Granny Weatherwax screamed above the crackle of flames. Don't you worry! You come aboard, you hear? It's all over. You can't do it! There was a small explosion behind Granny, and several handfuls of burning bristles broke off and whirled away into the booming depths of the gorge. Her stick jerked sideways, and Nanny grabbed her around the shoulders as a gout of fire snapped off another binding. The blazing broomstick shot from between her legs, twisted in the air, and went straight upwards, trailing sparks and making a noise like a wet finger dragged around the top of a wine glass. This left Nanny flying upside down, supporting Granny Weatherwax at arm's length. They stared into one another's faces and screamed, I can't pull you up! Well, I can't climb up, can I, at your age, Gaither? Nanny considered this. Then she let go. Three marriages and an adventurous girlhood had left Nanny Og with thigh muscles that could crack coconuts, and the G-forces sucked her as she forced the speeding stick down and around in a tight loop. Ahead of her, she made out Granny Weatherwax dropping like a stone, one hand clutching her hat, the other trying to prevent gravity from seeing up her skirts. She urged the stick forwards until it creaked, snatched the falling witch around the waist, fought the plunging stick back up to level flight and sagged. The subsequent silence was broken by Granny Weatherwax saying, Don't you ever do that again, Gaither Og. I promise. Now turn us around. We're heading for Lonkra Bridge, remember? Nanny obediently turned the broomstick, brushing the canyon walls as she did so. It's still miles to go, she said. I mean to do it, said Granny. There's plenty of night left. Not enough, I'm thinking. A witch doesn't know the meaning of the word failure, Gaither. They shot up into the clear air again. The horizon was a line of golden light as the slow dawn of the disk sped across the land, bulldozing the suburbs of the night. 
Esme, said Nanny Og after a while. What? It means lack of success. They flew in chilly silence for several seconds. I was speaking, what's name, figuratively, said Granny. Oh, well, you should have said. The line of light was bigger, brighter. For the first time, a flicker of doubt invaded Granny Weatherwax's mind, puzzled to find itself in such unfamiliar surroundings. I wonder how many cockerels there are in Lancre, she said quietly. Was that one of them was-name questions? I was just wondering. Nanny Og sat back. There were thirty-two of crowing age she knew. She knew because she'd worked it out last night. Tonight. And had given Jason his instructions. She had fifteen grown-up children and innumerable grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And they had most of the evening to get into position, should be enough. Did you hear that? said Granny. Over Razorback Way. Nanny looked innocently across the misty landscape. Sound travelled very clearly in these early hours. What? she said. Sort of an irk noise. No. Granny spun around. Over there, she said. I definitely heard it this time. Something like cock-a-doodle. Can't say I did, Esme said Nanny, smiling at the sky. Lancre Bridge up ahead. And over there, right down there, it was a definite squawk. Dawn chorus. Esme, I expect. Look, only half a mile to go. Granny glared at the back of her colleague's head. There's something going on here, she said. Search me, Esme. Your shoulders are shaking. Lost my shawl back there, I'm a bit chilly. Look, we're nearly here. Granny glared ahead, her mind a maze of suspicions. She was going to get to the bottom of this, when she had time. The damp logs of Lancre's main link to the outside world drifted gently underneath them. From the chicken farm half a mile away came a chorus of strangled squawks and a thud. And that? What was that, then? demanded Granny. Foul pest. Careful, I'm bringing us down. Are you laughing at me? Just pleased for you, Esme. You'll go down in history for this, you know. They drifted between the timbers of the bridge. Granny Weatherwax alighted cautiously on the greasy planking and adjusted her dress. Yes, well she added nonchalantly. Better than Black Alice, everyone will say, Nanny Og went on. Some people will say anything, said Granny. She peered over the parapet at the foaming torrent far below, and then up at the distant outcrop on which stood Lancre Castle. Do you think they will? she added nonchalantly. Mark my words. Hmm but you've got to complete the spell, mind. Granny Weatherwax nodded. She turned to face the dawn, raised her arms, and completed the spell. 
It is almost impossible to convey the sudden passage of fifteen years and two months in words. It's a lot easier in pictures, when you can just use a calendar with lots of pages blowing off, or a clock with the hands moving faster and faster until they blur, or trees bursting into blossom and fruiting in a matter of seconds. Well, you know. Or the sun becomes a fiery streak across the sky, and days and nights flicker past jerkily like a bad zoetrope, and the fashions visible in the clothes shop across the road whip on and off faster than a lunchtime stripper with five pubs to do. There are any amount of ways, but they won't be required because, in fact, none of this happened. The sun did jerk sideways a bit, and it seemed that the trees on the rimwood side of the gorge were rather taller, and Nanny couldn't shake off the sensation that someone had just sat down heavily on her, squashed her flat, and then opened her out again. This was because the kingdom did not, in so many words, move through time in the normal flickering sky, high-speed photography sense of the word. It moved around it, which is much cleaner, considerably easier to achieve, and saves all that travelling around trying to find a laboratory opposite a dress shop that will keep the same dummy in the window for sixty years, which has traditionally been the most time-consuming and expensive bit of the whole business. The kiss lasted more than fifteen years. Not even frogs can manage that. The fool drew back, his eyes glazed, his expression one of puzzlement. Did you feel the world move? he said. McGrath peered over his shoulder at the forest. I think she's done it, she said. Done what? McGrath hesitated. Oh, nothing. Nothing much, really. Shall we have another try? I don't think we quite got it right that time. McGrath nodded. This time it lasted only fifteen seconds. Seemed longer. A tremor ran through the castle, shaking the breakfast tray from which the Duke Felmet, much to his relief, was eating porridge that wasn't too salty. It was felt by the ghosts that now filled Nanny Og's cottage like a rugby team in a telephone box. It spread to every hen house in the kingdom, and a number of hands relaxed their grip, and thirty-two purple-faced cockerels took a deep breath and crowed like maniacs, but they were too late. Too late. I still reckon you were up to something, said Granny Weatherwax. Have another cup of tea, said Nanny pleasantly. You won't go and put any drink in it, will you? Granny said flatly. It was the drink what did it last night. I would never have put myself forward like that. It's shameful. Black Alice never done anything like it, said Nanny encouragingly. I mean, it was a hundred years, all right, but it was only one castle she moved. I reckon anyone could do a castle. Granny's frown puckered at the edge. And she let all weeds grow over it she observed primly. Right enough. Very well done, said King Varence eagerly. We all thought it was superb. Being in the ethereal plane, of course, we were in a position to observe closely. Very good, your graciousness, said Nanny Og. She turned and observed the crowding ghosts behind him, who hadn't been granted the privilege of sitting at, or partly through, the kitchen table. 
but you lot can bugger off back to the outhouse, she said. The cheek. Except the kiddies, they can stay, she added. Poor little mites. I'm afraid it feels so good to be out of the castle, said the king. Granny Weatherwax yawned. Anyway, she said, we've got to find the boy now. That's the next step. We shall look for him directly after lunch. Lunch? It's chicken, said Nanny. And you're tired. Besides, making a decent search will take a long time. He'll be an ankh Morpork, said Granny. Mark my words, everyone ends up there. We'll start with ankh Morpork. You don't have to search for people when destiny is involved. You just wait for them in Ankh-Morpork. Nanny brightened up. Ah, Karen got married to an innkeeper from there. I haven't seen the baby yet. We could get free board and everything. We needn't actually go. The whole point is that he should come here. There's something about that city, said Granny. It's like a drain. It's 500 miles away, said McGrath. You'll be away for ages. I can't help it, said the fool. The Duke's given me special instructions. He trusts me. Huh. To hire more soldiers, I expect. No, nothing like that. Not as bad as that. The fool hesitated. He'd introduced Felmut to the world of words. Surely that was better than hitting people with swords. Wouldn't that buy time? Wouldn't it be best for everybody in the circumstances? But you don't have to go. You don't want to go. That doesn't have much to do with it. I promise to be loyal to him. Yes, yes, until you're dead. But you don't even believe that. You were telling me how much you hated the whole guild and everything. Well, yes, but I still have to do it. I gave my word. McGrath came close to stamping her foot, but didn't sink so low. Just when we were getting to know one another, she shouted. You're pathetic. The fool's eyes narrowed. I'd only be pathetic if I broke my word, he said. But I may be incredibly ill-advised, I'm sorry. I'll be back in a few weeks anyway. Don't you understand? I'm asking you not to listen to him. I said I'm sorry. I couldn't see you again before I go, could I? I'll be washing my hair, said McGrath stiffly. When? Whenever. Howell pinched the bridge of his nose and squinted wearily at the wax-spattered paper. The play wasn't going well at all. He'd sorted out the falling chandelier and found a place for a villain who wore a mask to conceal his disfigurement. And he'd rewritten one of the funny bits to allow for the fact that the hero had been born in a handbag. It was the clowns who were giving him trouble again. They kept changing every time he thought about them. He preferred them in twos, that was traditional, but now there seemed to be a third one, and he was blowed if he could think of any funny lines for him. His quill moved scratchily over the latest sheet of paper, trying to catch the voices that had streamed through his dreaming mind, and it seemed so funny at the time. His tongue began to stick out of the corner of his mouth. He was sweating. This is my little study, he wrote. Hey, with a little study... You could go a long way, and I wish you'd start now. If you can't leave in a cab, then leave in a huff. If that's too soon, 
then leave in a minute and a half. Say, you got a pencil? A crayon? Hal stared at this in horror. On the page it looked nonsensical, ridiculous, and yet, and yet, in the thronged auditorium of his mind, he dipped the quill in the ink pot and chased the echoes further. Second clown. That's a right, boss. Third clown. Business with bladder on stick. Honk, honk. Howell gave up. Yes, it was funny. He knew it was funny. He'd heard the laughter in his dreams, but it wasn't right. Not yet. Maybe never. It was like the other idea he had about two clowns. One fat, one thin. This is a mean, dainty mess you've gotten me into, Stanley. He had laughed until his chest ached, and the rest of the company had looked at him in astonishment, but in his dreams it was hilarious. He laid down the pen and rubbed his eyes. It must be nearly midnight. And the habit of a lifetime told him to spare the candles, although, for a fact, they could afford all the candles they could eat now, whatever Vitola might say. Our gongs were being struck all across the city, and night watchmen were proclaiming that it was indeed midnight, and also that, in the face of all the evidence, all was well. Many of them got as far as the end of the sentence before being mugged. Howell pushed open the shutters and looked out at Ark Moorpork. It would be tempting to say the Twin City was at its best this time of year, but that wouldn't be entirely correct. It was at its most typical. The River Ankh, the cloaca of half a continent, was already pretty wide and silt-laden when it reached the city's outskirts. By the time it left, it didn't so much flow as exude. Owing to the accretion of the mud of centuries, the bed of the river was in fact higher than some of the low-lying areas, and now, with the snowmelt swelling the flow, many of the low-rent districts of the Moorpork side were flooded if you can use that word for a liquid you could pick up in a net. This sort of thing happened every year and would have caused havoc with the drains and the sewage systems, so it is just as well that the city didn't have very many. Its inhabitants merely kept a punt handy in the backyard and periodically built another story on the house. It was reckoned to be very healthy there. Very few germs were able to survive. Howell looked across a sort of misty sea in which buildings clustered like a sandcastle competition at high tide. Flares and lighted windows made pleasing patterns on the iridescent surface. But there was one glare of light, much closer to hand, which particularly occupied his attention. On a patch of slightly higher ground by the river, bought by Vitola for a ruinous sum, a new building was rising. It was growing even by night, like a mushroom. Howell could see the cressets burning all along the scaffolding as the hired craftsmen and even some of the players themselves refused to let the mere shade of the sky interrupt their labours. New buildings were rare in Moorpork, but this was even a new type of building. The disc. Vitola had been aghast at the idea at first, but young Tom John had kept at him, and everyone knew that once the lad had got the feel of it, he could persuade water to flow uphill. But we've always moved around, laddie, said Vitola in the desperate voice of one who knows that at the end of it all he's going to lose the argument. 
I can't go around settling down at my time of life. It's not doing you any good, said Tom John firmly. All these cold nights and frosty mornings, you're not getting any younger. We should stay put somewhere and let people come to us. And they will too. You know the crowds we're getting now? Howell's plays are famous. It's not my plays, Howell had said. It's the players. I can't see me sitting by a fire in a stuffy room and sleeping on feather beds and all that nonsense, said Vitola. But he'd seen the look on his wife's face and had given in. And then there had been the theatre itself. Making water run uphill was a parlour trick compared to getting cash out of Vitola, but it was a fact that they had been doing well these days. Ever since Tom John had been big enough to wear a ruff and say two words without his voice cracking. Howell and Vitola had watched the first few beams of the wooden framework go up. It's against nature, Vitola had complained, leaning on his stick. Capturing the spirit of the theatre, putting it in a cage, it'll kill it. Oh, I don't know, said Howell diffidently. Tom John had laid his plans well. He'd devoted an entire evening to Howell before even broaching the subject to his father, and now the dwarf's mind was on fire with the possibilities of backdrops and scenery changes and wings and flies and magnificent engines that could lower gods from the heavens and trapdoors that could raise demons from hell. Howell was no more capable of objecting to the new theatre than a monkey was of resenting a banana plantation. Damn thing hasn't even got a name, Vitola had said. I should call it the gold mine because that's what it's costing me. Where's the money going to come from? That's what I'd like to know. In fact, they'd tried a lot of names, none of which suited Tom John. It's got to be a name that means everything, he said, because there's everything inside it. The whole world on a stage, do you see? And Howell had said, knowing as he said it, that what he was saying was exactly right. The disc. And now the disc was nearly done, and still he hadn't written the new play. He shut the window and wandered back to his desk, picked up the quill and pulled another sheet of paper towards him. A thought struck him. The whole world was a stage, to the gods. Presently he began to write, all the disc, it is but an theatre, he wrote, and all men and women are but players. He made the mistake of pausing, and another inspiration sleeted down, sending his train of thought off along an entirely new track. He looked at what he'd written and added, except those who sell popcorn. After a while he crossed this out and tried, like unto the stage of a theatre is the world, whereon all persons strut as players. This seemed a bit better. He thought for a bit and continued conscientiously. Sometimes they walk on, sometimes they walk off. He seemed to be losing it. Time, time, what he needed was an infinity. 
There was a muffled cry and a thump from the next room. Howell dropped the quill and pushed open the door cautiously. The boy was sitting up in bed, white-faced. He relaxed when Howell came in. Howell? What's up, lad? Nightmares? God, it was terrible. I saw them again. I really thought for a minute that... Howell, who was absent-mindedly picking up the clothes that Tom John had strewn around the room, paused in his work. He was keen on dreams. That was when the ideas came. That what? he said. It was like... I mean... I was sort of inside something, like a bowl. And there were these three terrible faces peering in at me. I? Yes, and then they all said, All hail. And then they started arguing about my name. And then they said, Anyway, who shall be king hereafter? And then one of them said, Hereafter what? And one of the other two said, Just hereafter, girl. That's what you're supposed to say in these circumstances. You might try and make an effort. And then they all peered closer. And one of the others said, He looks a bit peaky. I reckon it's all that foreign food. And then the youngest one said, Nanny, I've told you already, there's no such place as Thespia. And then they bickered a bit. And one of the old ones said, He can't hear us, can he? He's tossing and turning a bit. And the other one said, You know, I've never been able to get sound on this thing, Esme. And then they bickered some more, and it went cloudy, and then I woke up, he finished lamely. It was horrible, because every time they came close to the bowl, it sort of magnified everything, so all you could see was eyes and nostrils. Howell hoisted himself onto the edge of the narrow bed. Funny old things, dreams, he said. Not much funny about that one. No, but I mean, last night I had this dream about a little bandy-legged man walking down a road, said Howell. He had a little black hat on and he walked as though his boots were full of water. Tom John nodded politely. Yes, he said. And? Well, that was it. And nothing. He had this little cane which he twirled and, you know, it was incredibly... The dwarf's voice trailed off. Tom John's face had that familiar expression of polite and slightly condescending puzzlement that Howell had come to know and dread. Anyway, it was very amusing, he said, half to himself. But he knew he'd never convinced the rest of the company. If it didn't have a custard pie in it somewhere, they said it wasn't funny. Tom John swung his legs out of bed and reached for his breeches. I'm not going back to sleep, he said. What's the time? After midnight, said Howell. And you know what your father said about going to bed late? I'm not, said Tom John, pulling on his boots. I'm getting up early. Getting up early is very healthy. And now I'm going out for a very healthy drink. You can come too, he added, to keep an eye on me. Howell gave him a doubting look. You also know what your father said about going out drinking, he said. Yes. He said he used to do it all the time when he was a lad. He said he'd think nothing of quaffing ale all night and coming home at 5 a.m., smashing windows. He said he was a bit of a royster-doyster, not like these white-livered people today who can't hold their drink. Tom John adjusted his doublet in front of the mirror and added, You know, Howell, I reckon responsible behaviour 
is something you get when you grow older, like varicose veins. Howell sighed. Tom John's memory for ill-judged remarks was legendary. All right, he said. Just the one, though. Somewhere decent. I promise. Tom John adjusted his hat. It had a feather in it. By the way, he said, exactly how does one quaff? I think it means you spill most of it, said Howell. If the water of the River Ankh was rather thicker and more full of personality than ordinary river water, so the air in the mended drum was more crowded than normal air. It was like dry fog. Tom John and Howell watched it spilling out into the street. The door burst open and a man came through backwards, not actually touching the ground until he hit the wall on the opposite side of the street. An enormous troll employed by the owners to keep a measure of order in the place came out dragging two more limp bodies which he deposited on the cobbles, kicking them once or twice in soft places. I reckon they're roistering in there, don't you? said Tom John. It looks like that, said Howell. He shivered. He hated taverns. People always put their drinks down on his head. They scurried in quickly while the troll was holding one unconscious drinker up by one leg and banging his head on the cobbles in search for concealed valuables. Drinking in the drum has been likened to diving in a swamp, except that in a swamp, the alligators don't pick your pockets first. Two hundred eyes watched the pair as they pushed their way through the crowd to the bar. A hundred mouths paused in the act of drinking, cursing or pleading, and ninety-nine brows crinkled with the effort of working out whether the newcomers fell into category A, people to be frightened of, or B, people to frighten. Tom John walked through the crowd as though it was his property, and with the impetuosity of youth rapped on the bar. Impetuosity was not a survival trait in the mended drum. Two pints of your finest ale, landlord, he said, in tones so carefully judged that the barman was astonished to find himself obediently filling the first mug before the echoes had died away. Howell looked up. There was an extremely big man on his right, wearing the outside of several large bulls and more chains than necessary to moor a warship. A face that looked like a building site with hair on it glared down at him. Bloody hell, he said. It's a bloody lone ornament. Howell went cold. Cosmopolitan as they were, the people of Moorpork had a breezy, no-nonsense approach to the non-human races, i.e. hit them over the head with a brick and throw them in the river. This did not apply to trolls, naturally, because it's very difficult to be racially prejudiced against creatures seven feet tall who can bite through walls, at least for very long. But people three feet high were absolutely designed to be discriminated against. The giant prodded Howell on the top of his head, Where's your fishing rod loan ornament? he said. The barman pushed the mugs across the puddled counter. Here you are, he said, leering. One pint and one half pint. Tom John opened his mouth to speak, but Howell nudged him sharply in the knee. Put up with it, put up with it. Slip out as soon as possible. It was the only way.
Where's your little pointy at, then? said the bearded man. The room had gone quiet. This looked like being cabaret time. I said, where's your pointy at, dopey? The barman got a grip of the blackthorn stick with nails in it, which lived under the counter just in case, and said, Uh, I was talking to the lawn ornament here. The man took the dregs of his own drink and poured them carefully over the silent dwarf's head. I ain't drinking here again, he muttered. When even this failed to have any effect, it's bad enough they let monkeys drink here, but pygmies. Now the silence in the bar took on a whole new intensity in which the sound of a stool being slowly pushed back was like the creak of doom. All eyes swiveled to the other end of the room where sat the one drinker in the mended drum who came into category C. What Tom John had thought was an old sack hunched over the bar was extending arms and other arms, except they were its legs. A sad, rubbery face turned towards the speaker, its expression as melancholy as the mists of evolution, its funny lips curled back. There was absolutely nothing funny about its teeth. Uh, said the barman again, his voice frightening even him in that terrible simian silence. I don't think you meant that, did you? Not about monkeys, eh? You didn't really, did you? What the hell is that? hissed Tom John. I think it's an orangutan, said Howell. An ape. A monkey is a monkey, said the bearded man, at which several of the drum's more percipient customers started to edge for the door. I mean, so what? But these Bloody lone ornaments. Howell's fist struck out at groin height. Dwarfs have a reputation as fearsome fighters. Any race of three-foot-tall people who favour axes and go into battle as into a championship tree-felling competition soon get talked about. But years of wielding a pen instead of a hammer had relieved Howell's punches of some of their stopping power. And it could have been the end of him, when the big man yelled and drew his sword if a pair of delicate, leathery hands hadn't instantly jerked the thing from his grip and, with only a small amount of effort, bent it double. An explanation may be needed at this point. The librarian of the Magic Library at Unseen University, the disc's premier college of wizardry, had been turned into an orangutan some years previously by a magical accident in that accident-prone academy and since then had strenuously resisted all well-meaning efforts to turn him back. For one thing, longer arms and prehensile toes made getting around the higher shelves a whole lot easier, and being an ape meant that you didn't have to bother with all this angst business. He had also been rather pleased to find that his new body, although looking deceptively like a rubber sack full of water, gave him three times the strength and twice the reach of his old one. When the giant growled and turned round, an arm like a couple of broom handles strung together with elastic and covered with red fur unfolded itself in a complicated motion and smacked him across the jaw so hard that he rose several inches in the air and landed on a table. 
By the time that the table had slid into another table and overturned a couple of benches, there was enough impetus to start the night's overdue brawl, especially since the big man had a few friends with him. Since no one felt like attacking the ape, who had dreamily pulled a bottle from the shelf and smashed the bottom off the counter, they hit whoever happened to be nearest on general principles. This is absolutely correct etiquette for a tavern brawl. Howell walked under a table and dragged Tom John, who was watching all this with interest, after him. So this is Roystrin. I always wondered. I think perhaps it would be a good idea to leave, said the dwarf firmly, before there's, you know, any trouble. There was a thump as someone landed on the table above them and a tinkle of broken glass. Is it real, Roystrin, do you suppose, or merely rollicking? said Tom John, grinning. It's going to be bloody murder in a minute, my lad. Tom John nodded and crawled back out into the fray. Howell heard him thump on the bar counter with something and call for silence. Howell put his arms over his head in panic. I didn't mean... he began. In fact, calling for silence was a sufficiently rare event in the middle of a tavern brawl that silence was what Tom John got, and silence was what he filled. Howell started as he heard the boy's voice ring out, full of confidence and absolutely first-class projection. Brothers, and yet may I call all men brother, for on this night... The dwarf craned up to see Tom John standing on a chair, one hand raised in the prescribed declamatory fashion. Around him, men were frozen in the act of giving one another a right seeing to, their faces turned to his... Down at tabletop height, Howell's lips moved in perfect synchronisation with the words as Tom John went through the familiar speech. He risked another look. The fighters straightened up, pulled themselves together, adjusted the hang of their tunics, glanced apologetically at one another. Many of them were in fact standing to attention. Even Howell felt a fizz in his blood, and he'd written those words. He'd slaved half a night over them years ago, when Vitola had declared that they needed another five minutes in Act Three of The King of Ankh. Scribblers, something with a bit of spirit in it, he'd said. A bit of zip and sizzle, you know. Something to summon up the blood and put a bit of backbone in our friends in the hypnic seats. And just long enough to give us time to change the set. He'd been a bit ashamed of that play at the time. The famous Battle of Moorpork, he strongly suspected, had consisted of about 2,000 men lost in a swamp on a cold, wet day, hacking one another into oblivion with rusty swords. What would the last King of Ankh have said to a pack of ragged men who knew they were outnumbered, outflanked and outgeneraled? Something with bite? Something with edge? Something like a drink of brandy to a dying man? No logic. No explanation, just words that would reach right down through a tired man's brain and pull him to his feet by his testicles. Now he was seeing its effect. He began to think the walls had fallen away, and there was a cold mist blowing over the marshes, its choking silence broken only by the impatient cries of the carrion birds. And this voice. And he'd written the words. They were his. No half-crazed king had ever really spoken like this, 
and he'd written all this to fill in a gap so the castle made of painted sacking stretched over a frame could be shoved behind a curtain. And this voice was taking the coal dusts of his words and filling the room with diamonds. I made these words, Howell thought, but they don't belong to me, they belong to him. Look at those people. Not a patriotic thought among them, but if Tom John asked them, this bunch of drunkards would storm the patrician's palace tonight and they'd probably succeed. I just hope his mouth never falls into the wrong hands. As the last syllables died away, their white, hot echoes searing across every mind in the room, Howell shook himself and crawled out of hiding and jabbed Tom John on the knee. Come away now, you fool, he hissed, before it wears off. He grasped the boy firmly by the arm, handed a couple of complimentary tickets to the stunned barman and hurried up the steps. He didn't stop until they were a street away. I thought I was doing rather well in there, said Tom John. A good deal too well, I reckon. The boy rubbed his hands together. Right, where shall we go next? Next? Tonight is young. No, tonight is dead. It's today that's young, said the dwarf hurriedly. Well, I'm not going home yet. Isn't there somewhere a bit more friendly? We haven't actually drunk anything. Howell sighed. A troll tavern? said Tom John. I've heard about them. There's some down in the shades. The shades is an ancient part of Ark Morpork, considered considerably more unpleasant and disreputable than the rest of the city. This always amazes visitors. I'd like to see a troll tavern. They're for trolls only, boy. Molten lava to drink and rock music and cheese and chutney-flavoured pebbles. What about dwarf bars? You'd hate it, said Howell fervently. Besides, you'd run out of headroom. Low dives, are they? Look at it like this. How long do you think you could sing about gold? It's yellow and it goes chink and you can buy things with it said Tom John experimentally as they strolled through the crowds on the plaza of broken moons. Four seconds, I think. Right. Five hours of it gets a bit repetitive. Howell kicked a pebble gloomily. He'd investigated a few dwarf bars last time they were in town and hadn't approved. For some reason, his fellow expatriates, who at home did nothing more objectionable than mine a bit of iron ore, and hunt small creatures, felt impelled, once in the big city, to wear chain-mail underwear, go around with axes in their belts, and call themselves names like Timkin Rumbleguts. And no one could beat a city dwarf when it came to quaffing. Sometimes they missed their mouths altogether. Anyway, he added, you'd get thrown out for being too creative. The actual words are gold, 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 gold. Is there a chorus? Gold, 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 said Howell. You left out a gold there. I think it's because I wasn't cut out to be a dwarf. Cut down, lawn ornament, said Tom John. There was a little hiss of indrawn breath. Sorry, said Tom John hurriedly. It's just that father... I've known your father for a long time, said Howell. 
through thick and thin, and there was a damn sight more thin than thick, since before you were bo- He hesitated. Times were hard in those days, he mumbled. So what I'm saying is, well, some things you earn. Yes, I'm sorry. You see, just... Howell paused at the mouth of a dark alley. Did you hear something? He said. They squinted into the alley, once again revealing themselves as newcomers to the city. More Porkians don't look down dark alleys when they hear strange noises. If they see four struggling figures, their first instinct is not to rush to anyone's assistance. Or at least, not to rush to the assistance of the one who appears to be losing and on the wrong end of someone else's boot. Nor do they shout, Oi! Above all, they don't look surprised when the assailants, instead of guiltily running off, flourish a small piece of cardboard in front of them. What's this? said Tom John. It's a clown, said Howell. They've mugged a clown. Theft licence, said Tom John, holding the card up to the light. That's right, said the leader of the three. Only don't expect us to do you two, because we're on our way home. That's right, said one of the assistants. It's the thingy, the quarter. But you were kicking him. Well, not a lot. Not what you'd call actual kicking. More foot-nudging sort of thing said the third thief. Fair's fair. He bloody well went and fetched Ron here a right thump, didn't he? Yeah, some people have no idea. Why, you heartless? Howell began, but Tom John laid a cautioning hand on his head. The boy turned the card over. The obverse read, J.H. Flannelfoot, Boggis and Nephews, Bespoke Thieves, The Old Firm. Established AM, 1789. All type theft carried out, professionally and with discretion. Houses cleared, 24-hour service, no job too small. Let us quote you for our family rate. It seems to be an order, he said reluctantly. Howell paused in the act of helping the dazed victim to his feet. In order, he shouted, to rob someone? We'll give him a chitty, of course said Boggis. Lucky we found him first, really. Some of these newcomers in the business, they've got no idea. Cowboys, agreed a nephew. Ank Morpork's enviable system of licensed criminals owes much to the current patrician, Lord Vetinari. He reasoned that the only way to police a city of a million inhabitants was to recognise the various gangs and robbers' guilds, give them professional status, invite the leaders to large dinners, allow an acceptable level of street crime, and then make the guild leaders responsible for enforcing it, on pain of being stripped of their new civic honours, along with large areas of their skin. It worked. Criminals, it turned out, made a very good police force. Unauthorised robbers soon found, for example, that instead of a night in the cells, they could now expect an eternity at the bottom of the river. However, there was the problem of apportioning the crime statistics. And so there arose a complex system of annual budgeting, chits and allowances to see that A, the members could make a reasonable living, and B, no citizen was robbed or assaulted more than an agreed number of times. Many foresighted citizens, in fact, 
arranged to get an acceptable minimum of theft, assault, etc., over at the beginning of the financial year, often in the privacy and comfort of their own homes, and thus be able to walk the streets quite safely for the rest of the year. It all ticked over extremely peacefully and efficiently, demonstrating once again that compared to the patrician of Ankh, Machiavelli could not have run a whelk stall. How much did you steal? said Tom John. Boggis opened the clown's purse, which was stuck in his belt, then went pale. Oh, bleeding hell, he said. The nephews clustered around. We're for it, sort of thing. Second time this year, uncle. Boggis glared at the victim. Well, how was I to know? I wasn't to know, was I? I mean, look at him. How much would you expect him to have on him? Couple of coppers, right? I mean, we'd never have done him. Only it was on our way home. You try to do someone a favour, this is what happens. How much has he got then? said Tom John. There must be a hundred silver dollars in here, moaned Boggis, waving a purse. I mean, that's not my league. That's not my class. I can't handle that sort of money. You've got to be in the Guild of Lawyers or something to steal that much. It's way over my quota, is that? Give it back then said Tom John. But I'd done him a receipt. They've all got, you know, numbers on, explained the younger of the nephews. The guild checks up, sort of. Howell grabbed Tom John's hand. Will you excuse us a moment? He said to the frantic thief and dragged Tom John to the other side of the alley. Okay, he said. Who's gone mad? Them? Me? You? Tom John explained. It's legal. Up to a certain point. Fascinating, isn't it? Man in a pub told me about it, sort of thing. But he's stolen too much. So it appears. I gather the Guild is very strict about it. There was a groan from the victim hanging between them. He tinkled gently. Look after him, said Tom John. I'll sort this out. End of CD 6